Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with an aim to promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths along the way, introducing some new ways of thinking, and making connections between Labour's history, its present, and its future. Today, we're going to get into the legacy of the Attlee 1945 Labour government and its relevance, or lack thereof, for a future Starmer administration. Breaking this down is Professor Richard Toy of the University of Exeter. Professor Toy is the author of several books, including the award-winning Lloyd George and Churchill and Churchill's Empire, and the co-author with my co-host Steve Fielding and Bill, Bill Schwartz of the Churchill Myths, which looks at the legacy and memory of Winston Churchill in popular culture. His most recent book, Age of Hope, Labor, 1945, and the Birth of Modern Britain, which has just come out with Bloomsbury, offers both a succinct history of the post-war Attlee government and an analysis of the myths surrounding it in our current era. So welcome onto the show, Richard. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I should say um, hello formally to Steve. Hi, Steve. Hello. Richard, Steve and I are going to talk Attlee. And we wanted to start off by asking Richard to talk a bit about how and why he sees the Attlee government as relevant to contemporary politicians in contemporary political debate. And in what sense it represented the birth of modern Britain, as the subtitle of your book suggests. And Steve and I had a bit of a back and forth about this before the show, um, with Steve contending that maybe the Attlee regime is arguably not, not modern, but a kind of Victorian hangover and its preoccupation with nationalization and insufficient concern with issues of gender or multiculturalism makes it of only limited relevance for the 21st century. Whereas I took the, the opposing view that, you know, it's the Attlee government that fundamentally shifts the peacetime relationship between citizens and the state and, you know, creates what we now think of as, as the modern dynamic of an active and engaged state. Um, but we'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, um, your, Richard, and having chosen to write this book at this particular moment about the Attlee administration and kind of reopen debate on its legacy and its relevance. Well, I can easily settle the dispute between you and Steve, Laura. You're right. Um, so that's settled. Um, but seriously, um, although I certainly tend towards that point of view, I don't think there's necessarily any contradiction between uh, seeing the Attlee government as strongly influenced by the Victorian era and also seeing it as 
modern and and decisive moment for uh, the reasons you said to do with the economy, obviously to do with the uh, extension of the welfare state, uh, decolonization, dramatic, uh, although obviously very far from complete, moves towards decolonization. Um, and, and I would also say that it is uh, modern from the point of view of the style of doing politics, um, that um, uh, it is uh, something where perhaps the, you know, the Labour Party had kind of nailed perhaps more comprehensively than any other party kind of before or since a way of putting its manifesto across a sort of concrete achievable but ambitious plan uh, which established its credibility with the voters and which it then um, to a very great extent uh, fulfilled and that this was in contrast to another style of doing politics which still persisted um, in the in the days of the the, you know, the 1940s with you know Churchill's view was that you shouldn't really be terribly concrete or specific because obviously circumstances might change and that you wanted to be flexible. So I think that from um, both the point of view of uh, society um, and from the point of view of, of sort of doing politics, uh, it was modern. Um, and uh, certainly, um, Steve, it was uh, modern in its day. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly a lot of things have changed. It obviously initiated a phase which lasted about you know, 30 years or so, which then there obviously were very big uh, sort of system changes, if you want to call them that. Um, but equally, I would say that in spite of those changes, there were certain things which you know, Thatcher and her successors uh, you know, could not perhaps undo, um, to a certain extent didn't want to or saw them to, as too politically risky. But really, you know, the, sort of the fundamental idea that argue as you might about the means of achieving it, that the government is fundamentally responsible for achieving prosperity. I mean, paradoxically, that's something which um, you know even even Liz Truss really agrees with, although she's got you know a very um, a very different way of do of doing it. But she she doesn't really just say it doesn't matter um, you know whether or not the you know so yeah what the government does um that she sees a fundamental responsibility for the government for, for trying to achieve uh you know, prosperity and growth and obviously that's not owed only to the labor party um it is something which genuinely was a point of consensus between both parties for a long time and it did have its roots earlier but but i would certainly uh obviously with the title of the book as you would expect come down on laura's side on this one well steve you want to make the Atlee's atavistic case? Well, um, I mean, Richard's book is is really good. I mean, I definitely would recommend it to anyone that kind of knows a little bit or doesn't know that much. I mean, it's a great, it's a great book uh, to to sort of get get you really started in terms of understanding what's going on. But but what's what's good about the book in particular is that Richard leads in um from 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 the time that you know Atlee's born and and the leading figures are born and sort of sort of makes a point about how they've how they're kind of formed um as politicians and the labor party too and then at the end he kind of takes takes the reader after 1951 after the government's at an end to try to talk about well how what happened next and what how do people think about it so it's that that that's what raised in my own mind really um the question because because of course like 
like you know anyone who's spent any time doing i mean i've i've written something on a few things on on this period Laura, so so review um and we we all want to think that this 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 uh, this period and this subject um as historians and maybe because of our own political beliefs it remains relevant i think i think maybe we exaggerate the extent to which it is and and it was just really a thought um given given the the, the uh the subtitle of Richard's book about the making of, of modern Britain. And I was thinking, well, yes, at the time it was modern. You know, people voted Labour. Some of them voted Labour because they didn't want to go back, back to the 1930s and and and, and different aspects of that. And Labour promised, you know, um, a new. A, they look, look to the future, literally. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute that. And and did ring many changes, which did. Let, you know, last for a long time, and the NHS, whatever the NHS is now, at least as an institution, that's that's Labour's you know primary responsibility that still survives. So I, it wasn't it wasn't that it was a sort of saying it's just you know the, the afterthoughts of um, the Victorian period. Though I do um, remember, I think it was Gareth. Well, it was Gareth Steadman Jones that referred to that government as something like the last flowering of late Victorian philanthropy. Um, you know, so that 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 was in my head as well. But it's now. Um, um, I mean, although um, he was much more, um, it was much more known for his reference to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Keir Starmer referred to Thatcher and Attlee and Blair as people that wanted to make meaningful change. And once in a while, he does make references to Attlee. Um, and some people might see what he wants to do, at least in terms of um, his ambitions, his missions, as being reminiscent of at least aspects of bringing the state back in um, with maybe some kind of indicative planning, although there's very limits, a lot of limits to that. It's not quite how Attlee and physical planning would have been, nationalisation would have been thought of at the time. But what, you know, someone who doesn't really know that much about about that period, um, some a student, you know, someone in their late teens, early twenties, maybe an an older, you know, you know, living in the society in which we do, a sort of post-Thatcher society, where many of those things that Attlee, the Attlee government placed down and thought that it was it was the march towards socialism, these things wouldn't be be reversed. It, these were permanent changes. Um, I just wonder how how they would see it. Would they see that you know the modern Britain that they live in today? Um, would they see the Attlee government as really talking to them, given its attitude towards women, given its attitude towards the empire, uh, people of colour? You know, you know, you know where I'm coming from. Sure. Well, I mean, I I totally see all those points, and you know, obviously, it's true that I mean, what I would say is that you know, sort of modern society remains sort of inflected by the Attlee government, if you like, just as it's inflected by you know, the Blair years and by, uh, you know, very heavily, obviously, by Thatcher and by the the, the the Victorian years. So I think, you know, it's I would be uncomfortable about saying there was an exact precise moment, um, you know, when modern Britain was created and it was during this precise six-year period. Um, so, you know, obviously you're right. And I think that there is a, an, also a point about, I mean, there's really two separate points. There is, can we extract um, meaning from uh, the Attlee government in order to apply or consider it in relation to the modern era, which I think we can. And then the second question is, how interested are you know, the general public or even indeed many politicians 
uh, in the actual details of the Attlee government. And then it is probably the case uh, that people aren't actually well informed. They have a vague idea about the creation of the NHS. They won't know, uh, you know very many details. Um, there's sort of a survey um, you know, showing that Attlee was rated uh, you know, fourth best post-war prime minister um, by the public. Uh, but I suspect, you know, a lot of a lot of the public simply, um, you know, sort of literally hadn't heard of him. So it wasn't necessarily a verdict on um, how good they really thought he was, merely a question of uh, the fact that, that, you know, the memories do fade. And, you know, back in the 1980s, um, Labour Party was running focus groups which were saying, maybe you should stop banging on about the Attlee government because it was 30 years ago, mate. And that point, Richard, that amongst the public, you know, he's ranked maybe fourth, um, you know, fourth best prime minister of the modern era. You contrast that, though, to a scholars think about Attlee still. And I mean, Steve was saying, oh, well, we've all written about Attlee. And it was it was funny when when we initially were talking about asking about his relevance, I was thinking, well, of course, he's relevant, because in some ways, you know, Atlee is more real to me than um, than a lot of people who are still alive and who've been you know in politics in the past few years and his shadow looms large, but I think you look at the way that academics view Atlee and he comes top in terms of most influential yes. prime ministers in the past century, and I guess maybe that's the disjunct, right? How is it that you communicate successfully the meaningful change that the Atlee administration? did implement and the ways that that still impacts our society to a public that is increasingly distanced from that government, right? And that if they could tell you one thing about the Atlee administration, it's probably that it created the NHS, right? Um, and maybe that was hammered home by the Olympics, you know, a decade ago, um, as much as anything else. But how, and I think this is something your book tries to do and tries to make the case, right? The, the, the enduring and continued relevance of the Atlee administration. But is there political mileage in in that story in our current moment when, as you say, he is such a vague um, figure for most people if he's on their radar at all? I, I don't think there's much mileage in saying, let's try and sort of you know, revive the you know, sort of personal memory of of Clement Attlee, and you know, sort of educate the public about it. Because I think if you're going to make effective um, political arguments, if you're going to make persuasive arguments, you really have to make them in relation to points of reference that people have already got. You can't really so you know, create those points of reference yourself. Um, so I mean, there's obviously always a disjuncture between talking to a Labour Party audience and talking to a wider audience, and Attlee is going to be of some relevance to talking to the Labour Party audience. Um, of course, you know, all these things said, and Steve has written about this in a very uh, interesting essay in, in his review of the film um, Spirit of 1945. Of course, it's not that long ago, um, you know, just under 10 years ago, that Ken Loach's documentary, The Spirit of 1945, came out. And that did obviously secure a measure of popular appeal. But I suppose what I found interesting about that film um, is the fact that really, it, from a left-wing perspective, I mean, you know, well, obviously people are on different wings of the party, um, there was there was clearly a, a, a choice to take a pretty much totally celebratory view of the Attlee government, whereas previous generations of left-wingers um, you know, might well or, or often did 
you know, take a very critical view of the Attlee government as being too centrist, as having not um, lived up to uh, its potential, to not have seen how radical the, the British people really were, and to have sort of you know, fallen in with the logic of state capitalism and the Cold War. And in a sense, from the left-wing perspective, from the you know, point of view of getting people on board, I think it probably made a lot more sense uh, for Ken Loach to make a you know, a film which, you know, in fact, totally ignored all foreign policy issues um, and didn't cover tricky issues like the end of the government and the Bevan Gateskill split. Um, you know, from from the sort of the raising people's emotions, the sort of going pure celebration, people probably wouldn't have turned out to say to see a film which said, "Oh, the spirit of 1945." Well, actually, in some ways, it was rather disappointing, or indeed, simply quite complicated. Yes, it's. I mean, the, the thing about the. I mean, look, I don't want to talk too much about Ken Loach. It gets enough publicity as it is. But um, <laughs> but but that but that was part of a project, a wider project, and of course, it it preceded um, Jeremy Corbyn becoming Labour leader. But um, of of the hard left um, to appropriate Attlee for their own cause. Um, so that's why they didn't really criticise uh, in, yes, the, in yeah. the film. Um, yeah. So so. Attlee became um, a kind of socialist hero, uh, which, of course, if you look at the policies of the Labour government um, from the sort of economic perspective, it compared to today and the present Labour Party, which is what they were doing, really. This was the era of Ed Miliband. This, yeah. is when the, this is when it started. They were kind of, it was a critique of Ed Miliband. Um, yeah. Of course, Attlee looks incredibly left-wing um, uh, and, and Ed Miliband most certainly didn't. So it was a way... They were clearly appropriating that person that they called Attlee, um, um, and then others at that time then start to fight back, didn't they? But um, I mean, he's a he became a bit of a football, and and I think the one reason why he became a football or, or he he lent himself to his footballization right. is um, there was there was another another YouGov poll because you've just referred to one that was about the British public, where he's only about 5% of the public thought he was a great prime minister. But the Labour Party, 29 members were, about ne- nearly a third couldn't express an opinion or didn't know anything about Attlee for, for them yeah. to be able to say anything. Um, 66% of them thought he was good, and only, like, I think it was 3% that thought he was bad. But there was a third didn't really know very much about him and couldn't express an opinion. So, so everyone thought he was good. I mean... If vaguely, and so of course he was. People in the Labour Party, at least, want to appropriate him because then then they can look good. I mean that that would be why Keir Starmer mentioned him in the speech that only got talked about when he mentioned uh, mentioned Thatcher. I think mm. so. He does suggest he's become in the mists of time a bit a bit like Churchill. Everyone can appropriate Churchill if they want to. It's just outside the Labour Party, nobody really wants to appropriate Attlee. Uh, I guess this is, you know, explains to a degree this the campaign of the left, you know, to to reappropriate or to appropriate Atlee. How you end up then getting Rebecca Long Bailey back in the leadership campaign three years ago, you know, claiming that Atlee was her favorite MP of the past fifty years, right? I mean, Atlee's you know out of politics by fifty years ago, um, but he is this this figure from the past about whom people have a kind of woolly knowledge, even within the Labour Party, but they think is good. Right, and they think is good because they associate him with some positive changes, um, and he manages to win two elections, right? Um, which not that many labor leaders have succeeded in doing. But there doesn't seem to be sort of really a, a clear sense of 
of what, you know, what he stands for, um, or an agreed sense within the Labour Party at this moment. And I think that's one of the things that your book picks up on, Richard. And I liked, I liked how at the end you sort of, you get into, it's almost the Atlee myths, um, you know, a sort of follow on to the, to the, to the Churchill myths and the different ways that he's been used um, by the Labour Party since the end of the Atlee government. And I don't know if that's something that you wanted to talk more about. Well, um, I would sort of talk about that easily at great length. I mean, I, I suppose <laughs> I think the the you know I guess I think maybe um, the person who actually spoke about Attlee in the most interesting way amongst politicians um, was actually Blair, um, but this was of course because he uh, couldn't just invoke Attlee. Uh, because everybody was sort of suspicious of him, didn't really think that he believed in this stuff. So he had to try and reinterpret Attlee. And um, he had to so, you know, sort of make this argument that um, you know, what New Labour was doing was, you know, in the same, it was in some way totally consistent uh, with um, you know, what Attlee had done, sort of the great days of the Labour government, but also saying that um, it'd be necessary to, of course, you know, take these core values uh, and these constant values and sort of ch change them in modern conditions. And so you know, Blair, who often people say, um, you know, people within the Labour Party say, oh, he doesn't know anything about history, um, is not really true. I mean, um, I not, wouldn't sort of obviously class him as, as a great historian, but, you know, he took the trouble to, in particular, in the um, you know, period before he became prime minister, so ninety four to ninety seven, to develop a you know a, a series of uh, I would say you know sort of sophisticated and um, not totally implausible, although I would actually say uh, misleading arguments about Attlee. In other words, he gives you much more to interpret there's a lot more kind of text if you like about what he said about Attlee than than what about a lot of other people have said about Attlee I guess the the the, the, the different the counter example would be Tony Benn also did say quite a lot about Attlee um, over the years uh, but him he was taking at different times um, you know very different opinions so that during the late 70s, he was standing up at Labour Party conferences and reading out things which Attlee had said about socialism in the, in the 30s and saying, well, you know, what we need is, is more of this, um, you know, turning to Jim Callaghan and sort of, you know, sort of reproving him for not being socialist enough. Uh, in the 80s, then, he was sort of having uh, conversations with E.P. Thompson, which was going much more along the... Um, you know, this was this was really a bit of a disappointment, and yes, there were sort of some achievements at the time, but really they were insufficient. And the, you know, you know, sort of the Labour Party had kind of dropped the ball by not having the full coverage of its convictions. Just to widen it out, just to go back to um, the the relative lack of um, sort of mythology about Attlee in the general public. It, this mm. just one of the very very few instances in which Attlee is mentioned in a popular cultural context. Because I mean, you you kindly mentioned um, that, that very brilliant book uh, that Richard and Bill and I wrote about you know the Churchill myths, and it and it was and it was writing that and, you know coming to the end. I was thinking, but where's Attlee? Um, you know, I mean Attlee. If Churchill is associated with you know winning the Second World War, defeating the Nazis. 
then Atlee is at least associated, some would say, you know, Bevan, of course, but is at least associated with the creation of the NHS, which remains for its, you know, despite everything, um, you know, one of the most, you know, beloved and necessary institutions in, in British national life, suffering though it is. So it was just really bizarre, I thought, increasingly, why isn't Atlee, you know, this this figure? Well, or at least the government, or at least that period, seen in in, in much more positive and, and vibrant terms. But Goodnight Sweetheart, which was um, a very popular situation comedy, which some of our listeners might might remember in the 1990s was was a, it was a rather bizarre comedy because it was about a man living in the present going back in time to 1940s um, blitz ridden London um, and then basically he was having two women he had his wife in in the present day and he had a girlfriend in the 1940s it was just a bit odd um, but it, in the end I mean the end of the whole series um, it ends in 1945 and and it turns out that the reason why this this guy has got the ability to go to and from um, the present to the past is that his mission isn't to have it away with a with a mistress. So his and his wife will never know because she's like fifty years before. It's to stop Clement Attlee being assassinated, and therefore. The, the conceit is if he had been assassinated, then there'd been no Labour government. He wouldn't have achieved various things. So that's about the one instance in a in a comedy written by two very pro-Labour men, it has to be said, um, that I can think of with Attlee. And, and that's, it's, it, I just think it's bizarre. But anyway, maybe Richard's book, I mean, it's asking a lot from a book to to kind of reinsert at least some sense of, of the achievement. Um, but it's, it's just so odd that... People like us and, to a lesser extent, people in the Labour Party have got this idea. And yet outside, it's relatively, the people are relatively oblivious. And I, I, and I, just, I just wonder, Richard, what, what you would like a reader who hasn't really you know, got a massive knowledge already about Atlee, what would you like a modern reader to take from the book in terms of you know, the relevance of, of what, of what that you describe from this, from this period? Well, Steve, can I come in with a follow-up question for Richard, and then you can sort of answer both together, inspired by what you just said, um, and this kind of question about um, does saving Attlee matter, right? And in some ways, when we talk about the Labour government, we're talking about you know not just Attlee the individual in the way that you're talking about Churchill the individual. And when Attlee is elected Labour Party leader in 1935, famously... Hugh Dalton in his um, you know, diaries says a, a wretched, disheartening result and a little mouse shall lead them, right? And then Dalton goes on to serve as his chancellor. But I mean, one of the things I think that comes through in the book is that Attlee perhaps had value, you know, that he has value added, that this is a team project, but that Attlee is a good team leader and he's a leader of what can at times be a dysfunctional um, you know, team ridden by infighting, mutual suspicions, personal animosities, um, and ideological differences. And maybe in some ways, if there is a lesson from Attlee for the present, it is how you manage, um, you know, a party and a parliamentary party that is a, a broad church and often, um, you know, the, its different members see issues very differently and have different political priorities and how you get those people to work together in a functional way so we can you know, think about the Attlee government's achievements, not just an individual's achievements. Well, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, I think that uh, 
you know, it was a remarkably strong team, although it was one which obviously became exhausted uh, sort of you know, through age and ill health um, after a few years. Um, and obviously, you know, Bevin and Morrison, who really did hate each other uh, to a considerable extent, did become part of this team, which was nonetheless you know, really pretty effective on the whole. Um Cripps, Stafford Cripps, we haven't really mentioned. Um, you know, Bevan, who obviously becomes a kind of a loose cannon towards the end of the of the period and obviously resigns, but has been, you know, sort of effectively kept in check um before that. So I think it is probably important to say it was a as a team effort. Um and that, you know, Attlee clearly also had um although, you know, he was far from perfect as a leader. Um, there were you know, very often he did have very effective management skills, and I mean it was quite interesting to uh, you know, follow Boris Johnson's evidence in the COVID inquiry over the last couple of days, where the, you know, there we have sort of laid out in WhatsApp messages and so on the fact that they all. Uh, really hate each other and think that they're all you know, all of them think all the others are completely useless and um you know Johnson's sort of defense was well you know if you'd if you'd sort of had whatsapp messages from you know the Thatcher government or the Blair government you know it would all look the same um and I mean that's actually an interesting question because certainly there you know how I would say maybe you know Harold Wilson's second government where it probably did get really quite a bit like that. Um, and, of course, in the Attlee government itself, there were plenty of people who were writing diary entries saying how useless, you know, the other lot were. They weren't necessarily you know, going as far as, you know, everybody in the government constantly writing about how all other people were completely useless. Um, but certainly there were, you know, th- there were significant um, tensions and, you know, Attlee managed this, um, I think, partly through a kind of you know, attention to detail and knowing the backgrounds of, and the habits and the sort of predispositions of uh, of his own MPs. Um, he managed it sometimes by, um, you know, a very you know, well-known kind of um, sharp and rigorous chairing style of you know just you know any objections no we'll move on and you know not not letting people have a chance to sort of start long monologues in cabinet and so on um, but also it sometimes had his deficiencies because he was you know he was more focused on getting a decision than he was on getting um, sort of a particular decision or getting his own views through. Um, and so that sometimes he seemed to appeared to promise, you know, one individual that he'd, um, you know, follow a particular line. And then when it ran into opposition in, in cabinet, he'd, he'd kind of drop it so that, you know, there were, there were certainly moments of weakness. Um, but so, so I think style of government is um, one thing where, you know, you'd, obviously rate him quite highly uh, with the caveat that that's not easy to recreate in a scenario where um, people can just forward WhatsApp chains to journalists and, you know, leak all the time and are on social media all the time. It's obviously a different environment now, which Attlee himself would probably find pretty difficult to cope with. But coming back to Steve's question about, you know, what would I hope that, um, 
you know people would take away from the book well i guess like the you know the biggest thing the biggest argument i try and make is about the way in which in 1945 the labor party created a what i think was a successful framing of the difference between themselves and the conservatives less of being one um of sort of you know socialism versus free enterprise although they weren't afraid to talk about socialism but much more effectively from the point of view of the public i think talking about you know the public interest versus the private interest because if you talk about you know, free enterprise um they you know, appear as an opponent of free enterprise well people uh, may well think that you know free enterprise sounds kind of you know jolly nice and you know maybe it would be if it if it existed or or could exist but the point which the labor party was making in 1945 was that in the previous decades um private companies had worked in various anti-competitive you know monopolistic or oligopolistic ways against uh, the public interest in order to you know, make profits for themselves and at the expense of the public good. And I think that framing was effective in making a case for a broad swathe of different policies, but also it was a narrative which wasn't really then particularly effectively uh, sustained in the years after, in the years uh, in the elections of 1950, 1950 and 1951. So I guess I do think that that is a potential a potentially useful framing which could be used um in you know modern rhetoric more often than it is not claiming that it's some sort of magic bullet um but i think obviously the problem which the labor party has always had is the portrayal of it as being you know, sort of hostile to enterprise or hostile to business and i think that just needs um a kind of a reframing order to, in order to sort of defang that criticism. I, I just wondered, because um, your focus is, I mean, it's, it's relatively traditional. It's, it's on, it's on the, I mean, it isn't just about Atlee. That, that might've been a bit misleading to, to, to the listener. It's you, but you, you look at the, the leading figures and, you know, to some extent, it's a collective biography to to an extent. Um, but you know, they they start in different places. This is where they end up, and then and then their disagreements that you, which I which I had forgotten how how they how much they hated each other and how much they really wanted to get rid of Atlee. But but the wider the wider context. I wonder if if you you'd, you'd be able to say why you didn't really focus on that so much. I mean, I know there's only so much you can say in any one book, but I was wondering in relation to uh, something that Ross McKibben has has because mm. he he he's covered this period in in a slightly different way, and he was one of his conclusions. Well, there were two things, two things that I wonder what what you might think about. Um, the first is, and this is to some extent one reason why I was thinking: is it really the birth of a modern Britain, or is it the start of the end of a modern Britain? That he says that one reason why Labour does get elected, and and of course in between 45 to 50 to 51 elections, it actually increases yes. its share of the working class vote yeah. um, quite impressively. Um, so that in 51, it actually gets the highest um, share of the vote that Labour ever gets, 48.8%. Uh, I've got that in my head. Um, 
and yet still loses because all the votes, it, you know, the votes are yeah. distributed very, very badly. There's lots of majority, big, big majorities in working class areas. McKibben says, you know, to understand that really, it's the impact of the war. All of those, all of those industries that were flat on their back with lots of unemployment in the 30s, all were revived, and it's kind of like the last flowering of the so-called traditional working class, which of course starts to dissipate mm. from that point on into the 1950s and beyond. So. I just wonder what you think about about that as an argument, as a as a way of understanding uh, the, the trajectory of the government. But the other thing he says is that, uh, and also um, at the heart of its ultimate failure is that Atlee, the government, does focus on on, on the economics um, and does achieve all these various things, um, but it doesn't address cultural inequalities. The BBC is still the BBC. All these. Clubs, you know, West End—they're—they're they're all the same. It doesn't re—and and famously, of course, it doesn't. Uh, it, it kind of reinforces it accepts the tr- the so-called tripartite um, educational system that's introduced from 1944. It doesn't really have a go at culture, um, and that's maybe—and that's something that maybe one maybe one reason why um, it's it's made such a limited impact more generally in terms of public consciousness. Um, but I just wonder what you you know, given given McKibben's position as at least some some might regard as one of our uh, leading historians of this period. Um, what what you might think of those those two points? Well, I think I'd you know, without going into lots of detail, I'd agree with the first one. Um, the second one, I would say, well, you know, those may well be um, valid comments or valid criticisms, but they don't really explain why Labour lost for the very reason that you've just said, that obviously the working classes hadn't been alienated. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, the working classes were um, you know, doing very well in terms of prosperity and possibly in terms of you know, sort of restored self-esteem if people had been out of work for, for long years in the, in the 30s. So um, you know, what I'm really trying to say in the book is that, it, you know, historians of the left tend to be kind of sympathetic to the left and they also tend to be incredibly sort of self-lacerating. So if Labour if Labour lost an election, it must have been because of some fundamental flaw or weakness that needs to be uh, you know, discovered. And I'm really saying that, you know, on the one hand, there were lots of contingencies um, you know, and certainly mistakes which which Labour made, or Crips in, in terms of insisting on a sort of early an election early in uh, in nineteen fifty, um, when if they waited a little bit and fuel petrol rationing had come to an end, you know, they might have, have gained some popularity and then sort of got a working majority that would have taken through them through to um, you know nineteen fifty five, mm. um, and then I also think that. Uh, you know, the sheer fact of um, you know, the outbreak of the Cold War uh, really shouldn't be underestimated as a factor in um, sort of you know, taking the edge, if you like, more more than taking the edge of you know what I've called an age of hope with a certain amount of irony. Because yes, there was you know, lots of hope at the beginning, but clearly a lot of that um, had dissipated by 1951. But you know that can be partly explained by the fact that essentially immediately, pretty much immediately as World War II had ended, people started talking about World War III. And if you like, this was the 
you know, the obviously I knew the period well already, but if you like, from the point of view of the emotional truth, which sort of hit me when doing the research and doing the writing, it was that, um, you know, this is just a really horrible experience. Uh, the, you know, the fear and anxiety that people would have had, uh, the fear of now a possible nuclear war, which seemed very real in 19, later in 1950 when Truman seemed to suggest that nuclear weapons could be used in Korea. So, of course, everybody knows about the outbreak of the Cold War, but the thing which is, you know, we, we, in retrospect, we also know that it didn't turn into a hot war, which can sort of take away from um, an appreciation of what it may have felt like to, uh, you know, to be there at the time uh, with this, with, you know, with this constant level of anxiety. People didn't think, well, this is the outbreak of a Cold War, which is going to last, you know, forty years or so, and it's all going to be a bit unpleasant. It was, you know, war could break out uh, you know next week next month or or next year so of course it's difficult to assess exactly how many people um really took an interest in in foreign affairs i'm sure there were a large number of people who you know all this stuff passed them by but i would i would you know put more emphasis on contingency and these external uh, the external situation than on you know, internal weaknesses in the Labour Party's ideology uh, or, you know, a kind of failure of, of ambition of its agenda. So, I mean, I feel I'm having a bit of deja vu all over again here. Yeah. In that I feel like we're, um, you know, we have this slight faulty towers, don't mention the war, um, <laughs> recurrent theme um, in these podcasts, right? We, we talk about the legacy of the Blair administration and then it's like, oh, but but let's, Let's focus on, you know, his agenda and then not get waylaid in the way that, you know, the history of the Blair governments is was really shaped ultimately by by Iraq. But I think, you know, there is and when we think about what people don't know about Atlee, right, the way in which the Atlee government, despite being a government of the left, right, is very on board with the Cold War project, Mm -hmm. the way in which debates over, you know, a British nuclear deterrent really rend um, the Labour Party in the late 40s. You know, it comes through in the book and, you know, doubtless did have an impact on the electorate as well as that sort of general feeling, as you say, of just anxiety and unease, which scholars have done some great work on recently, sort of thinking about how how this fears about nuclear preparedness and kind of doomsday thinking, you know, impacted broader culture in in that post-war period in Britain and, and beyond. But I also, I wanted to go back, Richard, and just sort of, you know, tease apart. I do think contingency is very important. But I mean, you said, well, the working class remained behind them, right? But the working class is a loaded term because it really does mean the male unionized working class, right? Which does, you know, remain... Um, with Attlee and arguably you know, remains with the Labour Party for quite a long time. But the working class is not just made up of unionized white male workers, right? I mean, and women are, are working class as well, um, defined socioeconomically and defined in terms of their identity. Um, but arguably, and I mean, Carolyn Steenman and so many people um, have done great research on this, you know, that is a group that becomes alienated from labor earlier because they feel that the 
agenda of the party is focused on production more than on consumption, right? That there isn't a sense in which their lived experience as principally as consumers um, is being impacted by a government agenda, which is really privileging the needs of, of workers above the needs of consumers. And, and this current political moment where you know, an inflationary crisis has really made people feel their identity as consumers um, you know, more acutely than at other times. I mean, is there a warning in the history of the Attlee administration about the risk of kind of privileging production over consumption as a political message, perhaps? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I completely accept all the points that you make. And that clearly there were lots of areas where you know the the Attlee government didn't get its priorities right um and you know attempts to persuade people i mean william crofts wrote about this many years ago you know to, to sort of go and work in cotton factories you know in very unappealing jobs um you know for example where, where they weren't appealing to um uh, to women and and they had these publicity campaigns which which basically failed and, and it, of course um you know i i guess with the point about consumption obviously it is true that the government and the, the largely male ministers or you know almost exclusively male ministers in it didn't really appreciate um what uh, women were going through and the burdens which were upon them um but of course i would also say that that was you know that um it was presented as though these burdens were by, by you know, the Conservative Party was, I would say, in a rather cynical way, exploiting those um, discontents, um, sort of presenting uh, the shortages which were making rationing necessary as somehow being you know, the responsibility or fault of the government, which largely speaking, they weren't. Um, and so um, obviously that uh, that dimension is very important um but i suppose you know i guess the question is is there some scenario where the labor party does that appeal better understands these things better and somehow um you know nudges up from the 48.8% through to the you know 50 50% and um you know wins the election and stays in power forever after Ah, if only we were all better counterfactual historians. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, at the end of his book, has you know att- attempts to sort of draw out some lessons. Um, I mean, in inverted commas. I mean, no, no historian really thinks you can have perfect lessons from the past. But um, I mean, some people have compared Starmer to Atlee, if only because of his uh, modest, modest mm-hmm. way, and he, he can't, he can't really deliver a speech, you know. In a particularly an enthusiastic way, but 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 then again, you know, Starmer's government is going to go into a position where the British economy is is in a complete mess, um, yeah. and it's not entirely incomparable with the the position that Attlee found himself in. And and actually, Starmer's surrounded by people who probably think they're much better at being Labour leader than he is, and they're probably all conspiring mm. to get rid of him, like yeah. like with Attlee. But I mean, be, being a bit more seriously, maybe a bit more soberly. Um, is there anything you think that Keir Starmer could usefully draw from the experience that you that you describe in your book, which really should go on everybody's Christmas list if it's not too late? Um, is there anything that you think he could get from that period that you would want him to get that might usefully sort of nudge him in a certain direction when he becomes prime minister? Well, 
I, I think that in, in a sense, leaving aside what the contents of the policies might be, I would just say that it's important to start thinking now about how, you know, in maybe five years' time, you might win a second election. Because from my point of view, it seems, you know, I may maybe I'm too optimistic, but it seems to me that um, you know, Labour is going to win the next election and probably by a pretty healthy margin. At the same time, um, you know, as the experience of 1945 to 50 shows, that popularity can dissipate quickly in um, a relatively short period of time in difficult conditions as Starmer will undoubtedly face once he comes into power. So the question is, how do you, and, and I'm not saying I know the answer to how you do it, but you know, the dilemma is, um, you know, come up with a fantastic looking manifesto for 2024 or possibly you know, early 2025. Um, and then uh, if you carry that out, how do you refresh and renew during the life of a government in such a way that you've got a series of, you know, on the one hand, you have achieved what you what you said is necessary from your first manifesto, but then to have a sort of compelling tale about what you're going to do next and why that is a logical uh, next step. So I think those are the things which um, people should, you know, obviously they will be worrying about the latest opinion poll and the you know latest media story is very very difficult for politicians to get that uh, lengthy horizon but you know really that kind of planning for um you know preventing um ideological exhaustion which is often laid at the door of of the Ackley government and not entirely unfairly people couldn't really agree what they wanted to do once the promises of let us face the future had been uh, completed so um you know i would I, my recommendation would simply be start planning for how to win the second election now a tall order for a group that maybe is more concerned to get through the next one but but sage advice nonetheless A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.